Though people such as the, the Corinthians are enamored with human philosophy and wisdom, Paul continuously presents God's hidden wisdom, which is Jesus Christ crucified. True spiritual maturity involves judging ourselves and others in light of God's revelation in the cross. The second reading is from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Yet among the mature we do speak wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to perish, but we speak God's wisdom, secret and hidden, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the, the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the human heart conceived, that God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For what human being knows what is truly human, except the human spirit that is within? So also no one comprehends what is truly God's, except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit that is from God, so that we may understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. Word of God, word of life. Grace and peace to you from God, the Creator, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. A perfect crucifixion, or crucifixion in the present tense. Most of you know it by heart. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. The first article of the Apostles' Creed, followed by the second. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Was crucified. It's strange to hear about the crucifixion during the season of Epiphany, isn't it? I mean, just weeks ago, it seems, we were celebrating the birth of Christ. Normally, it would not be until the end of Lent that Golgotha, the hill upon which Christ was crucified, comes into focus. Yet here is the Apostle Paul in our second reading for today talking about Christ crucified. Words we hear every time we recite the Apostles' Creed. 
Well, rest assured, it's not a mistake. The editors of our lectionary, that is, people who chose these readings to correspond with the various seasons of the church year, which in turn correspond to various chapters of Jesus' life and the ministry that followed. These editors had reasons for including 1 Corinthians as our second reading of the day. Epiphany, after all, is a time of revelation, of disclosure, beginning with the story of the wise men, where the light coming into the world, as the Gospel of John puts it, has become manifest, made known. No wonder the lectionary editors, moreover, picked Matthew 5 as our gospel reading for the day. There Jesus tells his followers to reflect his light, if you will, by sharing their light, by letting it shine before others in the way they live. That's an epiphany, a disclosure, not only of the light that has come into the world, but of the kingdom from God that is becoming manifest. Epiphany, in short, is a time of discovery, of unveiling, of revelation, which is exactly what we see in the Apostle Paul and his talk about crucifixion. There in the cross, he says, the ordinary understanding of wisdom, or what today we might call common sense, something never expected, says Paul. God unveils God's wisdom, which is to say God's secret plan of salvation in which Christ's crucifixion was the main event. Paul subverts wisdom, which would expect to find the revelation of what God is doing in the world in a glorious place, in a palace, not in a cross on the edge of Jerusalem. We proclaim Christ crucified, Paul says earlier in 1 Corinthians 1.23, a stumbling block or scandal in the Greek to the Jews. What kind of Messiah, after all, would be crucified? Foolishness as well, to the Gentiles. Christ crucified. Most of us know it by heart. He was crucified, died, and was buried. I think the fact that most of you, most of us, know the creed by heart is a mixed blessing. It's good and it's bad. It's good insofar as it helps us remember the basic elements of our faith in the same way the Lord's Prayer functions. But it's bad, I think, because with regard to the crucifixion especially, this moment in the life of Jesus kind of loses its power. We end up taking it for granted and forget how scandalous it really was. I mean, look at the cross. Absent a body, no visible reminder of suffering, totally sanitized. We relegate it to the past, to a moment once upon a time, 
to a sacrifice, now complete, where Christ, to use the language of Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, paid the price for my sins and yours. My question, does this really have any effect on us if we relegate this to the past and imagine the cross absent the body of Christ, the one who paid the price? Pay the price. I blame the theologians. Actually, I take that back. I blame one theologian, Anselm of Canterbury, who died on my birthday, and don't forget this, April 14th, I'll expect many gifts, in 1109. Anselm is famous, as some of you may know, for his theory of atonement. That is, how Jesus' death saves human beings. You'll recognize the logic immediately. First, human beings owe a debt to God because of sin. Second, we can't pay it. Third, God, in the person of Christ, accordingly steps in and pays the debt for us by suffering in our place. This frees us forth from debt and saves us from punishment we would otherwise receive. The view in question here is called substitutionary atonement, and it dominates both Catholic and Western Protestant theology. Many people, naturally, have criticized Anselm's view. The philosopher Slavov Zizek, for example, known as the rock star of philosophy, points out that debt in Anselm's theory is actually not paid, but merely transferred. That now, instead of owing God the Father payment for sin, we are in debt to Jesus, God's Son, who paid the debt on our behalf. We are, in other words, not really liberated. Christ's death, Zizek writes, is here the ultimate assertion of the law which burdens us, its subjects, with guilt and with a debt we will never be able to pay. That's Zizek's criticism. My criticism is this. Anselm's theory relegates the crucifixion to the past. It's a done deal. Jesus paid the price on the cross for your sins and mine. And now, now that that event is over, life goes on. Business as usual, empty words in a creed. It wasn't until I read Martin Luther in seminary that I realized there is much more to the crucifixion than I would have first assumed. That the crucifixion, get this, wasn't over. In his earlier career, can't read my own writing, and this will surprise some of you, Martin Luther took to task people who blamed the Jews for Christ's death. It will surprise you because, of course, we know of the other Luther, the Luther at the end of his life who said some horrible things about the Jews. That's where Luther ended but it's not, thanks be to God, where Luther began. 
Some people, he wrote, meditate on Christ's passion, that is, the suffering and death of Christ, by venting their anger on the Jews. This, Luther says, this singing and ranting satisfies them, for they are in the habit of complaining about other people. I love that. I've never been in that habit, but the people here in question have. They love to complain about other people. But that's not the best way to contemplate the passion of Christ. If you want to blame anyone, Luther says, for Christ's death, don't blame the Jews. Blame yourself. You, and I say this in great trepidation, you and I are the ones who torture Christ. You, says Luther, are the one who, by his sin, killed and crucified God's son. Wow. Hardly a line I'm going to use in pastoral care. Certainly a conviction that has its problems. But notice here what Luther is saying. The crucifixion somehow is still going on. It is not yet finished. Wild, isn't it? An ongoing crucifixion. Where would Luther get such an idea? Well, the answer, of course, is not Anselm of Canterbury, but Paul of Tarsus. Listen closely. When the Apostle Paul refers to Christ crucified in verse 2 of our second reading and in 1 Corinthians 1.23, he uses the perfect instead of the aorist tense. Let me explain. The aorist or simple past tense refers to an action that is completed, a done deal. Christ was crucified would be in the aorist tense. Christ was crucified, as we say in the Apostles' Creed, and as some translations of Paul read as well. The perfect tense, on the other hand, which Paul actually uses, refers to an action that, true, began in the past, but has not yet been completed. That means that the perfect translation of 1 Corinthians 1.23 and chapter 2, verse 2, is not Christ was crucified, simple past, or even Christ crucified, as our otherwise God-inspired translation, the NRSV, reads. But listen to this. Christ having been crucified. Do you hear that difference? The first of these, as in our creed, suggests that the crucifixion happened and belongs in the past. The perfect tense, however, which again is what Paul uses, tells us that though, of course, this happened in the past, it's still going on. 
As one commentator writes, not only was Christ crucified at a particular point in time in the past, Christ remains the crucified one even as he reigns over the cosmos. So why? You're probably wondering, even all the way back there in the choir, why does this matter? Who cares? A crucifixion, according to the Apostle Paul, not simply completed in the past, a done deal, not those things, but an ongoing reality in the life of God, one where Christ remains the crucified one, wounds and all, even as he reigns over the cosmos, a still-being crucified God. Wow! What do we do with that? How do we respond? Well, a couple answers for me spring to mind. One, for one thing, we think, let me start that again. One, for one thing, I think this is the Apostle Paul's way of saying that when you suffer, God suffers with you. That God in Jesus Christ remains then and now what the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead calls the fellow sufferer who understands. God is with you. That's certainly good news. The trouble is we are not always with God. When we vilify the poor, when we turn away from the stranger, and when we scapegoat the immigrant, are we not by these sins, as Luther says, crucifying Christ? Here the crucifixion in the perfect tense opens our eyes to actions and attitudes that deepen Christ's wounds. I think here not only of the way we treat other people, but also the way we are treating this planet, myself included, a crucifixion of the world. It's not enough, it turns out, simply to say in the aorist or simple past tense, Christ was crucified. For the Apostle Paul, at least, writing in the perfect, the crucifixion, though it happened in the past, is ongoing. That means that when we suffer, Christ suffers with us. But perhaps more importantly, it serves as a stark reminder that what we do to the least of these, as Jesus says in Matthew 25, we do to him. The crucifixion continues. Fortunately, thanks be to God, so does the resurrection. Amen.